Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. For the first part of today's show, we'll be talking all about the animated short films of Frank and Caroline Morris. This Friday night, the Whitney Humanity Center on Wall Street will be hosting several screenings focused on this filmmaking couple's early works, including their 1973 Oscar-winning animated short, Frank Film. We'll be joined by directors Frank and Caroline Morris, as well as by Yale film archivist Brian Meacham, for a discussion of this Friday's screenings, the stories and techniques behind some of these films, and the truly mesmerizing world of experimental animation. For the second segment of the show, I'll be joined by WNHH station manager Lucy Gelman and New Haven Independent staff writer Alan Rappel for a review of The Handmaiden, a new movie from Korean auteur Park Chan-wook that follows a young Korean girl from a family of thieves who gets caught up in a plot to defraud a secluded Japanese heiress. But first, I'm very happy to welcome to the show Brian Meacham, Frank Morris, and Caroline Morris. Brian is the Archive and Special Collections Manager at the Yale Film Study Center and, fortunately for us, a regular guest on Deep Focus. You can listen to previous conversations we've had with Brian on everything from Home Movie Day to the treasures from the Yale Film Archive series by going to deepfocusradio.com. And Frank and Caroline Morris are accomplished animated filmmakers who've been creating highly personal, experimental, and critically acclaimed short films for over 40 years, including Frankly Caroline, Screen Test, Coney, Impasse, Frank Film, and many more. Brian, Frank, Caroline, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's truly a pleasure to have you three here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Okay, so Brian, as the curator of the series, I, I want to start with you. Could you tell me and the listeners a bit about what we'll be playing at the Whitney Humanity Center this Friday night? Sure. So uh, you mentioned the Treasures from the Yale Film Archive, a uh, series that I've been here and spoken with you uh, about before. This is uh, the fourth program in the Treasures from the Yale Film Archive Season 3, which began uh, in September. And uh, so this uh, series of films, you know, it, it, we, we showcase films from our collection. And one of the, one of the sort of most exciting uh, kind of screenings that we have are screenings where we can showcase new film preservation work that we've done. And that's what we're going to be doing on Friday night. So uh, we're going to be screening four films that the Yale Film Study Center has preserved over the last year. And those are four of uh, Frank Morris's earliest films, the films that he made here at Yale while he was a student. And we're going to be augmenting those four new uh, Yale film preservations with three other uh, sort of later and better known uh, works by Frank and Caroline including uh, a, a new digital restoration of Frank Film, which I believe was just completed on Monday, um, uh, a new print of Coney, uh, the their 1975 film, which was just printed last week, and um, a 1999 print of Frankly Caroline, uh, which is kind of a counterpart to Frank Film, which is a print that comes to us courtesy of Frank and Caroline. So it's going to be almost all film with some uh, with a brand new DCP thrown in, uh, because the film preservation work on that title uh, is so fresh and hasn't even really been completed yet. So I'm, I'm eager to talk about Frank Film and Coney and, uh, and frankly, Caroline, but let's maybe start with the four student films, since those are the kind of newly restored films and the ones that will be getting a, a premiere uh, on Friday night. Could you tell us a bit before we turn to Frank and Caroline, Brian, how did these four student films uh, end up on your plate, how, how did were they already in the archive, and someone just kind of stumbled upon them, or uh, was this a, a discovery for you and your team? Uh, yeah, it was certainly well. It was a discovery that was like many discoveries, sort of already out there in the open. It just took someone asking. So uh, I came to the Film Study Center about three years ago, 
And two years ago this month, I went down to New York to a screening where I was introducing some films that I had worked on while I was a preservationist at the Academy Film Archive in Los Angeles. And at that screening uh, was Frank Morris, and uh, uh, he screened, uh, I believe it was a a digital version of his uh, film, Coney. And I found out during the screening that Frank had gone to Yale, and I went up and asked him afterwards if he had, uh, you know, I sort of introduced myself and asked him if he had any any films that he had made perhaps while he was at Yale, just sort of taking a shot in the dark. And he said, well, yeah, of course. Uh, and a few months later, I was up at his and Caroline's place in Nassau. And about three weeks after that, I had applied for a grant to preserve the films that, that he had so generously donated. So he was able to find the original materials or the best existing versions of his films, Quick Dream, You're Not Real Pretty But You're Mine, and Chemical Architecture, uh, those are three that we preserve through assistance from the National Film Preservation Foundation. And a little bit later, he found another film, Coney Island Eats, which we preserved uh, on its own. So those are the four uh, shorts from 1967 and 1968, which we will be premiering or re-premiering or preservation premiering or however you want to refer to it uh, on Friday night. I'd love to turn to the filmmakers themselves now with Frank and Caroline Morris. Frank, you, you sent me a, a wonderful uh, kind of transcript of an interview that you did within an Indian film magazine in which you provided many, many a great anecdote about your time at Yale as an art student in the late 60s. But I wonder if before we get to Frank Film and Coney and Screen Test, could you tell me and the listeners a bit about what you remember about these four student films that will be playing at Friday, but also just what making films as a you know young grad student in the late 60s at Yale was like? Uh, sure. Uh, first of all, I'll drop the H-bomb now and get it out of the way. I struggled at Harvard to take any class I could in art, but there were very few, and no one could, or no one I knew could get into the film or animation or photography classes. So since my best teachers at Harvard had come from the Yale Art School, I applied and snuck in because... I had just enough stuff to put in a portfolio. I couldn't get in as a painter or a sculptor uh, or a printmaker, but I could get in as a graphic designer. And once I got there, I realized that in our small class of 12, uh, we were obsessed with film, but there was no way to do it. And uh, just by accident, our very pushy chairman of graphic design, we called him Mr. Machiavelli, found a way for us to go to the chemistry department and use their camera that the professor used to make educational films for the chemistry students. And we were each allowed to make one short film in four hours on one roll of film, no sound, no editing, no music effects. And uh, a number of us, took advantage of that, and then there was no turning back. I, I love how you talk about how the, the graphic design chairman tracked down a homemade animation stand from the chemistry department, how the drama school sponsored a film course for people in graphic design to really begin to not just learn about the great films um, of the mid-20th century and early 20th century, but also to start making them. But if we, you know, thinking about your, your later works and celebrated works that, as such kind of personal, intimate films were these student films, the ones that Brian just mentioned, uh, the, the names of which I've, <laughs> I've already forgotten, I'm afraid, but were these as, were these personal? Were these homework assignments? Were these exercises in understanding how to make animation or, or somewhere 
between those three? Uh, they were personal in, in the sense that I didn't know what I wanted to do with them, but I'd been inspired by, of all things, uh, a collage that the writer, Donald Bartlemy, had put into The New Yorker, and he called it The Venus of Akron, and it was the statue of Venus on top of a um, rubber tire. And I, I thought, oh, I may not be able to draw, but I can collage. So uh, I just got into it that way. Other people in my class were more adept at drawing and photography, and we just all made films however we could. And we all elbowed our way into drama school class and used the cameras. Brian, I wonder if you could maybe introduce us a bit to the uh, the context in which Frank began making short films, but also a bit of your own history, personal and professional, with um, experimental animated shorts, but also a- animated short films in general. I know you worked at the Academy Film Archive for a number of years as the short film preservationist, and and I imagine accumulating quite a bit of exposure to this kind of subgenre of animation. Yes. Well, yeah, you're, uh, that's correct. I, I was a short film preservationist, which covered uh, both live action and animated shorts, um, most of which were in some way related to the Academy Awards. Either they were recipients of Academy Awards or the films were nominated for Academy Awards. And of course, Frank Film was kind of a, a towering presence in that in that world. It was one of those films that everybody uh, sort of was in awe of, uh, you know, the, the sort of creativity, the, the stamina, the attention to detail and the, the sort of sheer, uh, time it, it took, or it would have taken at least from a viewer's standpoint and probably took 10 times more than that from the filmmaker standpoint to actually put the thing together. It was a film that, um, has, has now uh, been preserved by the Academy Film Archives and, and Frank and Caroline have, have uh, donated much of their original material of their later work to the Academy Film Archive. Um, and my work there really uh, focused on uh, sort of filling holes in the collection of the Academy Film Archive when it comes to uh, live action and animated shorts. So I was tracking down filmmakers from, you know, Zagreb to Tokyo to New York City to, uh, you know, to Orange County to, to the Valley um, and it was, it was a lot of sort of the, the sort of thing that I ended up doing with Frank, which was just sort of walking up to somebody or picking up the phone, cold calling someone and saying, Hey, do you have any of these films in your closet, in your basement, in your attic, in a vault somewhere in your, you know, personal storage unit and, uh, and trying to kind of bring them back to life in one way or another. Um, film is a, is a surprisingly resilient medium and film, uh, if, if given even just a little bit of care and ignored, uh, can can withstand the, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of time without uh, deteriorating uh, in many ways, and that's what happened with Frank's films uh, that we were able to work on, and that's what happened with a lot of the work that I ended up um, putting into the vaults of the Academy Film Archive and and sort of preserving and restoring. And so it's you know it's it's things like this that are really the the real joy of this of this profession. So you, you mentioned Frank Film as a kind of towering achievement in this field of experimental animation and of animated shorts, and I think that's a great place to start, especially considering it's one of the movies playing on Friday night. And so, again, I want to turn back to, to Frank and Caroline. So it, thinking about Frank Film, a, a 1973 Oscar-winning short film, 
uh, which is kind of uh, I be interested to he- hear your description of the movie as the filmmakers, but an, an eight and a half minute kind of animated collage about Frank's life up until that point in time in, in his late 20s, describing growing up in a, a middle class household in the mid 20th century as things are kind of getting better and better each year, but also the anxieties and the consumption that comes with being a, a mid-century American. But maybe I'll, I'll turn to Caroline first and then to Frank. Caroline, as you uh, think back on Frank film over 40 years later, uh, considering your role as editor and also inspiration, what is it about Frank film that jumps out to you now? What, what is it that sticks out to you a few decades after uh, its creation? Well, um First of all, I, I think that the reason that Frank Film was such a success when it initially came out was because it's very overwhelming, both visually and in terms of the sound, dual soundtrack. And I think it just really caught people's attention because of that, and also because it echoed echoed a lot of what people were feeling. As you said, it echoed a middle-class upbringing. It echoed a lot of the angst one feels about growing up and finding one's place in the world. And it just struck those chords and resonated. As for now, uh, I'm hoping that it still has a full impact. I think some of the visual power has been diluted by the fact that the computer has taught so many people how to deal with visual elements. I mean, everyone makes videos now. Everyone even does some animation. Um, So the visual is no longer as overwhelming. I think that the soundtrack is still very unique, the fact that it's a dual soundtrack, and I certainly haven't come across it in any other film, and it's just savage. So uh, you, you bring up a, a bunch of kind of points around animation in general that I find really fascinating, and also aspects of Frank film that really distinguishes it from other animated films of that era and of the 20th century. And one is that, that tension between the handmade and the computer made, especially with the rise of kind of computer technologies for animation in the late 20th century, the whole, this whole field of filmmaking has, has changed so much. And I think there's always been some kind of conflict uh, within the world of animation between those who see animation as a vehicle for kind of artistic expression and personal expression and those who see it as a vehicle for kind of testing out new techniques or practicing one's you know, the mastery of one's craft. And I know that's not just reserved for animation that could apply to filmmaking in general. But Frank, considering how, you know, within Frank Film itself, uh, you describe how important it is uh, for you to work with your hands, how you wanted to be an architect, how you wanted to work at your dad's uh, gas station and ultimately became a graphic designer and animator, partly because of the appeal of, of working with your hands. Is that something that sticks out to you now, watching Frank Film 40 plus years later, that handmade aspect to it? Yes, well, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I still like to work with my hands, but we soon found out after we uh, ran out of uh, film grants to apply for and get that uh, when we spent 20 years doing films for Sesame Street and HBO and other clients, uh, we had to jump to the computer in order to be able to afford to do animation for other people. And we became quite addicted to... Uh, 
what's now owned by Adobe, uh, an application called After Effects, and I could just live there for the rest of my life. But I still want to start with visuals that I find just in magazines. Uh, I've always been very pop culture. My favorite teacher at Harvard was a sculptor who came from Yale, an undergraduate and a graduate student at Yale. And he once took my parents aside and said, you know, Frank could really make something of himself if he could just get over this pop art crap that he's interested in. But I, I find that the imagery in magazines, from the lowest magazine to the most uh, upscale magazine, says so much about our culture that I just can't stop ripping them up and putting them into films. So I think that that gets at, uh, you know, I was, in doing research for this episode, I read an essay that Michael Kerbel from the Yale Film Study Center wrote for Film Comment in the mid-70s about Frank Morris and, and Caroline Morris's films. And uh, he talks a lot about how one of the, you know, the kind of greatest and most surprising achievements of Frank film is how incredibly personal and intimate it is, while at the same time pulling from most the, the most kind of impersonal and anonymous of sources, which are these magazine cutouts of kind of an idealized version of kind of white middle-class American life in the mid-20th century, images that do not depict Frank or Caroline or anyone else in his family, but are pulling from uh, from magazine versions of the real world. And I, I think that at least when, when I reflect on what, you know, what sticks out to me watching it for the first time this week, but also 40 years later, is that incredible balance between uh, how personal and intimate it is and also the, uh, again, that anonymous nature of the sources. Frank, is that something that you see in, in collage in general and some of the pop art that you're drawn to, or was that something you were trying to do kind of uniquely uh, and for the first time with, uh, with Frank Film? Well, we have to thank uh, Tony Schwartz, who unfortunately is no longer with us, but he uh, was just the greatest sound person there ever was. In fact, he came up with and did the commercial that was only shown once with the little girl uh, picking the petals off the daisy and the atomic bomb. Uh, he was extraordinary. And so I came to him with the finished film visually, and it took me a year to convince him to work on it. And he did, and I showed it to him. And while I showed it to him, I read my list of words that define my life. And all of the words, or almost all of them, except for personal names, began with S. And he turned off the projector after we'd only shown him 30 seconds of footage. And he said, what is this crap? What, what is this supposed to be about? I said, well, it's my life story, and these are all the words beginning with F that define it, and they all relate to the images you're seeing at the moment I say those particular, pardon the expression, F words. And he said, oh, for God's sake, can we start over? He shoved the microphone uh, into my face, and he said, just tell me what everything is here and what it means to you. And so uh, that was the original uh, uncut, unedited soundtrack. And he said, now that's what the film is. We said, no, it's the list of F-words. And we had a big fight, and we didn't talk for several days, and we came back and we said, what if it were both of them? And he said, well, I'm the only person who could do that. And he did it in about half an hour with two quarter-inch tape copies of the things I had said and the list of F-words, 
and a razor blade to uh, to cut the quarter-inch tape, and then that was the soundtrack. And we've never been able to duplicate it again. Uh, we've tried to copy it because he he couldn't deal with Coney Island because he'd been lost there as a child, and he couldn't deal with screen tests because he couldn't relate to drag queens. So we never worked together again. We wanted him to do Frankly Caroline, but at that point he was into Alzheimer's and just couldn't handle it. Well, then before we can move on to some of those other films, Brian, I, I want to um, dwell on this, the aspect of the soundtrack and of music in Frank and Caroline's films for a second more, because one, again, as, as Frank and Caroline were describing, the final soundtrack is this counterpoint between Frank uh, describing what is happening in this barrage of images about him growing up uh, outside of Key West and then going to Harvard and Yale and becoming an animator. And then, you know, in counter to that, we have him reading F-words, counting backwards in time, uh, providing a kind of monosyllabic or at least one word kind of descriptions of uh, kind of almost a free association. And in my understanding of the kind of experimental animated film that he was responding to or that this is in kind of the context of, um, music is always a very important source of inspiration and kind of point of exploration for animators from someone like Oscar Fischinger or Nor Norman McLaren. It's always either the music is inspiring them to make this kind of abstract or representational art or they're trying to actually kind of put the music on the screen, like see what the soundtrack looks like. As you um, think about, I guess, what made Frank film so critically successful in the 1970s, but also how that soundtrack fits into that larger context. Do you, I guess, do you agree with that? Do you think of music as a pivotal, I mean, even more central to animated shorts than to other aspects of film, or are they just doing something different than, but kind of in a, a parallel way to what every filmmaker has to do who has a soundtrack? Well, we just had our local film festival up here, and my favorite uh, program each year is experimental animation brought to us uh, from New York City by Gary Lee, who's a wonderful experimental filmmaker. And someone from the audience said at the end, he said, uh, as extraordinary as these films are visually, I think you have to give 50% of the credit to the soundtracks. I mean, do, do all you animators just have friends who are brilliant musicians, or, or did you all grow up studying music? And Gary said, let me tell you, I think that 59.8% of every animated film is the soundtrack. And so we've been lucky enough to work with musicians on uh, the Coney Island film and on uh, Impasse, which was, in fact, a tribute to Oscar Fischinger. And certainly all the Norman McLaren films just knocked us out when we first saw them. So there's a long history of soundtracks being important to animation. The only problem with us is that we tend to work ass backwards. We make all our visuals first, and then we try and figure out what works with that musically or orally. Uh, but we've just been lucky in finding uh, people last minute. It's interesting uh, that you mentioned that, uh, Tom, because looking at uh, two of the films that we're going to see from Frank's time at Yale... Uh, Quick Dream and You're Not Real Pretty But You're Mine. Uh, you'll see that that Quick Dream is is was it was the film he referred to as the uh, the assignment with no post production, no editing, no sound. Uh, and You're Not Real Pretty But You're Mine is a, is a sort of expanded version of that film with the addition of a soundtrack. So it'll be sort of an A B study where you get to see 
what the film is like with much of the same uh, visual material uh, first without a without a soundtrack and and then with a soundtrack and with that soundtrack being uh, in the same vein of of Frank's interest in in pop culture imagery, uh, it being uh, a pop music a song by Sonny and Cher. So uh, you'll you'll see uh, that sort of contrast there. But yeah, you're you're absolutely right that the soundtrack uh, is is you know just as important, if not in some cases more important than the visuals. We also have uh, the Mary Ellen Butte collection at the Film Study Center, and she was a pioneer in in what's called visual music and and in and in trying to sort of you know represent and and visualize uh music uh, on screen in an animated way and uh you know Fischinger and uh and Norman McLaren and the rest of those um who were all sort of working in that same vein you can see their influence on Frank and Caroline's work as they've as they've mentioned and it's a fascinating sort of thread to follow through the history of animated film as we continue talking about visual music and we move on from Frank Film in the student years, I want to say that you're listening to WNHH Community Radio, New Haven's home for uh, Community Radio, 103.5 FM. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and this is Deep Focus, and we are talking with Brian Meacham and filmmakers Frank and Caroline Morris, who will be having screenings of several of their short animated films this Friday, November 4th, at the Whitney Humanities Center at Yale. Um, Frank and Caroline, after Frank Film, you worked on a number of movies that you uh, described as animated documentaries, uh, movies like Coney and Screen Test, uh, movies that kind of combined photography of real people as opposed to kind of drawings, but still maintained that uh, almost a, a representation of them or a pr- uh, editing of them, the way that they move, maintaining that style of animation. And I wonder when you... When you speak about, as we begin to talk about Coney and Screen Test, what do you mean, uh, maybe I'll go to Frank and then to Caroline, what, what, do, what do you mean by animated documentaries? What, what, what do those two words together mean to you? Uh, well, there's a famous documentary film festival in Leipzig, Germany, and they are also extraordinary for having about uh, a decade ago decided that Animation is documentary, too. It's just a, a documentary of someone's brain or of someone's life. And uh, just because you use animated techniques doesn't mean you can't tell something as truthful or as real as live-action filmmaking. And uh, I think we just like to do fast imagery, and that's why we do a lot of single-framing. And I was certainly influenced by people who were brilliant at it before me, including uh, Norman McLaren at the Film Board of Canada. And, and Robert Fulton. And Robert Fulton, whom I taught with. I taught animation, and he taught live-action filmmaking at Harvard. But his films were so far out there. They were, they were music videos before music videos were even invented. And he taught me how to use just a simple Bolex camera and take single frames and take fast footage and slow footage and uh, do things with exposure and run the same piece of film through the camera twice or three times or four times. And some of that kind of imagery pretty much made uh, Coney Island, uh, I think 95% of Coney Island comes from that. And 5% from the brilliant Canadian uh, anima- no British animator, Derek Lamb, 
who taught at Harvard and spent a lot of his time going around the campus animating the campus and animating a house being moved. And uh, there's a lot of that in Coney, too. So I, I uh, there were two rules in art school. The first rule was that anything you do is going to be totally original and no one's ever seen it before and it's going to knock them dead. And the second rule, which followed very quickly, was, okay, so you can't think of what to do. Steal someone else's idea and make it better. <laughs> Um, well, as we I mean, so just to quickly describe for the viewers, Coney and Screen Test are two late seventies kind of short animated documentaries that you worked on. Coney uh, capturing you know the kind of various people, boardwalks, images, iconic rides at Coney Island, all presented in, in a very kind of fast, kind of rapid progression of images. Sometimes uh, we see the kind of happy kind of beachgoers at night preparing, or at a day preparing for a swim, and we see people kind of running along the boardwalk at night. And then screen tests, as you described, we have the kind of auditions of nine uh, amateur actors making their uh, their screen tests, their um, their tapes for potential employment, but it's as much about putting on masks and face paint and kind of presenting an, an image of who they are, who they want to be for the camera, as it is uh, preparing for a particular role. And I'm glad that you brought up the National Film Board of Canada because I, I was thinking about how with the the general post office in in Britain and the National Film Board of Canada acting as these two kind of very important, very large kind of incubators for experimental animation in the 20th century. A lot of uh, the animators who worked for them, including Norman McLaren, came from a very uh, kind of specific political perspective. They were often working, you know, they were either members of the Communist Party, at least either before they joined or while they were there. And, and they often, they sought to, I'm thinking of like Norman McLaren's uh, Neighbors, which is a very kind of pointed anti-war and anti-violence statement. And there's something, there's often a very strong kind of political valence to these experimental animated films. And I wonder if you... Uh, maybe I'll start with Caroline and then go to Frank. Do you see any kind of political perspective in Coney or Screen Test? Um, I think as Frank says in Frank's film, he, he was very briefly political and it lasted maybe about five seconds. Um, and I think that has carried through to the rest of our films. No, I don't think, while we're both very interested in politics and are certainly following this particular election very closely, um, I don't think any of that ever really gets into our films that I can think of. Uh, Frank, do you think in any way that well, just, politics just influences? In, uh, we're definitely capital L liberals, and uh, certainly we met some uh, people who like to dress up in drag and saw nothing wrong with making a film about them. And then when it premiered at the Museum of Modern Art, someone I had known from New Haven came up to me after the screening, and he said, well, I get Coney, but I don't get screen test, because either you think these people are are just eccentric and awful, or you think they're extraordinarily talented, but I don't think that. So this is just a terrible film. Uh, we're much more open than that. So that that's the limit, I think, of our politics. Uh, certainly the hour show we did for PBS called Lala, Making It in L.A., is simply 50 people all trying to make it as actors or musicians. And uh, the only politics in that is that you just let people be what they are. And uh, 
that's the film, and that's the reality of their existence in L.A. It may be sad, it may be funny, it may be upsetting, uh, but that's what it is. You know, I I think that that uh, is kind of a nice transition to my le- next question, which is more about the the legacy of of Disney for the work that you all have made and some of your peers and and inspirations have made. Because I know that a lot of uh, you know, animators again, from you know Norman McLaren to Stan Vanderbeek or wh- whoever, these people are often kind of re- explicitly or implicitly resisting this tradition of uh, Disney animated work, which is kind of established animation in American popular culture as yes, professional, but also uh, simple and directed for children, and also created on kind of an assembly line. And I wonder if is that uh, is have you had to grapple with the the legacy of of disney animation at all frank as you approach uh creating your animated films and also the various associations of disney well you bring you bring up all the saints of animation i mean uh even though i couldn't get into the animation course at harvard they were nice enough to post public screenings and once they had stan vanderby come and show his films and they knocked me out he was so funny and so scatological and so left wing. Uh, and we actually worked on a TV special for Disney when we lived in L.A., and it was all about special effects, and they had an actor who was major effects. And it was a whole other world. Uh, I have to say that I, uh, we both grew up with uh, Disney features, and I'm still, uh, you know... I have a weakness for Snow White and Dumbo and all those, but lately uh, I just find that a lot of animation is loud, screamy, fast, and unsatisfying. (laughs) And that's a teacher length. Brian, as you think about your uh, experience with animation and with animated shorts, do you see, and as you know, someone also interested in sharing uh, kind of important works of film and film history with the public. I mean, access is such an important part of really each position that you've had at, at Yale and the Academy of Film Archive. When you take out something like Frank Film or Coney or Screen Test, do you feel like you have to in any way combat the popular understanding of what animation is and who animation is for? Or is does this fit into a tradition that you think exists comfortably kind of side by side with the, the Disney of the world? Yeah, I think that Anytime you can bring an audience to a group of films that expand their idea of what either film can be or what a particular genre or style of film can be, you're doing a good thing. My my only fear is that uh, people, you know, they won't see something just because they're not aware that it's out there. And so the idea that, you know, you're you're having this screening of these really fascinating films that are difficult to see anywhere else, uh, but you have a pretty limited audience just because of either where you are or, or you know, your publicity machine, that sort of thing. Uh, I think, you know, beyond that, what, what you can do to get these films out in terms of, you know, sharing them online or sending these tour programs to tour at other archives and other institutions is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a really integral part of, of the practice of a film archive. And, you know, I think in this day and age with, you know, what people see and create uh, with their computers uh, and, and what they see online has has expanded the, the idea of, of animation to a point where 
I don't know that anybody would would you know be taken aback by something being described as animation simply because it doesn't look like you know a CGI a Disney or Pixar film because you know there's just so much out there uh, that that people are sort of feasting on these days that that this this material that Frank and Caroline have made really you can sort of see uh, how inspirational it's been to a lot of animation that's come since uh, since the 1970s. Frank and Caroline with uh, your kind of release of, of Frankly Caroline in the early 2000s it represents a, a pretty nice uh, kind of arc back from Frank film where this is a return to that kind of cut out collage style of animation with the narrated soundtrack except the focus has shifted from being solely about Frank to uh, starting out with Caroline and then being about the the relationship and the kind of loving and doting and, and hair pulling and uh, inspiring relationship of, of Frank and Caroline. And so, again, I, I want to go to both of you, but as you think about uh, the kind of arc of your careers working in animation, you've mentioned how you've become kind of addicted to certain uh, kind of Adobe softwares, and that may have changed the way that you approach films. But does uh, something like Frankly Caroline correctly kind of tell to me and viewers that this is a, uh, that the way that you approach making uh, these personal kind of intimate animated short films is pretty consistent with how you approached it back in the early 1970s? Or is there some kind of perceptible change in the way that you approach making these movies that, that you'd like to reflect on uh, 40 years later? Uh, no, I don't think that we are really making any adjustments um, except for the fact that we'll probably end up using the computer or the scanner as a camera and get getting the images into the computer and then to some extent manipulating them. But our intention uh, for the next film that we're working on, and I have to say that we work on them for a long, long time, um, it's um, doing cells. Once again, the traditional form of doing animation, it's just instead of um, filming it with on an animation stand, uh, we're going to basically, in quotes, film it on, on the computer and then perhaps manipulate to a certain extent. And in the great tradition of... Uh the people at a Hollywood dinner party where one person has just talked for three hours about themselves and they turn to everyone else at the table and they say, well, that's enough about me. What did you <laughs> think of my latest film? And our next film is Frankie Goes Hollywood. And uh, it's a love-hate letter to the eight years we spent trying to break into the Hollywood film scene only to realize it just wasn't us. Well, I, I cannot wait to see that one. And as yeah, as we wind down the interview, and I'm afraid I, I've just got one more question left for, for you, uh, Frank, and that is, um, as we uh, as we think about the, you, in, again, in that transcript of the interview you did with that uh, Indian film magazine, you mentioned all the different kind of fortuitous mistakes that happened during the making of Frank film, the stacking of cutout images that ultimately led to a kind of dissolve feel for the animation that duplication or the repeating of the word nothing on the soundtrack that kind of fortunately yes. came, came over the the time in the movie when you're not sure about what grad school to pick or what to do with your future. As you think about um, both the 
kind of challenges and benefits of being an animated filmmaker, but also what advice you would give to you know young filmmakers in 2016 who are looking to make equally kind of personal and experimental films. Uh, what do you think of and how do those kind of fortuitous mistakes factor into uh, what you would kind of say to a, a young aspiring filmmaker? Well, to tell a story on myself, I came home from teaching one day and I said to Caroline, that Bob Fulton is so out there and so zen. He's so silly. I heard him say to his live-action film students today, well, what you do is you put film in your camera and you go out and you take footage. Then you get it developed and you look at it, and then you go out and take more footage, and eventually the film will tell you what it wants to be. Well, I'm damned if that isn't exactly what happened. You just have to remain open to every single accident that happens to you and, uh, and, and realize sometimes that things are gifts from above. We were starting the soundtrack recording for screen test, and the woman who was recording the sound started out by saying, Hello, hello, this is Frank Film. I mean, excuse me, this is screen test. Well, as soon as we heard it, we thought, that's how the film opened. Uh, or as uh, Jasper Johns used to say uh, about the way you make art, uh, take something, make something with it, make something different with it. Uh, you, you, uh, you just have to keep pushing yourself. Maybe you start with an idea of what a film is, but if you look at your imagery as you develop it, it's going to start talking back to you. This well, is good. That's not. Well, that's um, where the computer is totally different now because you have instant feedback and you can see immediately what uh, what the imagery is trying to tell you. Um, it was very different when you had to wait a week for the film to be developed. Yeah. Well, and, speaking. Uh, Speaking of gifts, I'm I'm so I'm sorry to cut you off, but we're we're running out of time here. I'm so grateful to you too for hopping on this interview and telling us a bit about uh, these movies. It, it's really been a pleasure, and it's been such a pleasure to discover these movies for me because I I was not expecting to be hit by them as hard as I was. But watching Frank Film and Coney and Screen Test and frankly Caroline, they're as emotionally moving as they're just visual wonders to behold. So Frank and Caroline Morris, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for letting us talk, 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 and. Brian, as always, thank you for coming by and tell us when and where the screenings are one more time. Thank you, as always, Tom. Uh, the screening will be tomorrow, Friday, November 4th uh, at 7 p.m. at the Whitney Humanities Center Auditorium, and that's at 53 Wall Street. It is free and open to the public, and we really hope to see you there. Okay, well, I will definitely be there. And coming up next is a review of The Handmaiden. But first, let's hear a bit of Ellison Jackson.
Welcome back to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. Now for the movie review segment of the show. Uh, Park Chan-wook's The Handmaiden follows a young Korean girl from a poor family of thieves who's roped into a con job in which she pretends to be a courtly handmaiden to a secluded Japanese heiress on the brink of insanity. Dun, dun, dun. Part of the joy of the movie is, is trying to keep up with its various plot twists, so I'll try to avoid as many spoilers as possible, and we'll see if we can maintain that. Though, just talking about the plot in any regard is going to spoil a little bit, so be forewarned, we'll probably talk about things that you may not want to know before seeing the movie. I'm but, fully uh, planning to spoil the movie. But <laughs> maybe it won't spoil everything. But I, I will say that the movie explores with great relish and intensity the idea that initial impressions often miss the complexity of people's personalities, backgrounds, and most importantly, motivations. When you're a con artist... This type of misapprehension is more than just unprofessional. It's illegal, as one character puts it, which basically means it'll get you killed. So, Lucy, as, as you watch The Handmaiden, I wonder what your first impression was, and then your second impression, and then your third. Did you like it from the start, or did you have to work your way there along with our duplicitous gamblers, thieves, heiresses, and handmaidens? No, I, um, I, I was charmed from the start, I think, because it is a visually resplendent film. It's just very, very beautiful, and it tickles the senses from the get-go. Um, but I was charmed, and then I was enthralled, and then I was really on the edge of my seat. It's a wonderful sort of Brothers Grimm, Cinderella meets film noir meets um, Little Bit of Blue is the Warmest Color. And um, I, I just loved it. I thought it was fantastic. So, Alan, there's a lot in this movie, and I think that the one or there a few threads that uh, that kind of continues from plot twist to plot twist is a constant kind of misunderstanding of who is in control. And often it winds up that the men who think that they are in control, who are kind of ostensibly orchestrating every single aspect of their lives and the people in their lives find out that indeed they may not know as much about uh, what's going on as they think. Was that aspect of... I mean, was this a, a movie that you enjoyed, a beguiling one, one you found thought-provoking in any way, or was it just smut? Uh, yeah, I wanted to call in sick on this one, uh, Tom. Uh, uh, I, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I was listening to Lucy's description of, um, I don't know, the Brothers Grimm or a uh, Will. I certainly it's got resplendent colors, and it's and this is uh, this is a guy who really. Um, kind of loves the lushness uh, uh, that you can get with lots of close-ups and so on. But uh, I hate to say it, but um, it, you know, um, it's it's a it's kind of Victorian porn transferred to some um, uh, uh, you know a murky moment in the. Uh, it, it appears to be the the Japanese occupation of Korea, and all so. Uh, a long story short, um, uh, I, 
I was not with this movie. I'm still not with this movie. Although it 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 does have it does have riches, and the the aspect of the movie that I'm that I'm that I found most interesting was the um, uh, the confidence game, and uh, but unlike some great films about confidence games, the, the, this film sacrificed the the plot twists and turns. It seems to me. Uh, because it was, I guess it's stuck in this Victorian um, a porno genre. It it, 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 all that was uh, kind of sacrificed to create moments of more, you know, more, more entanglement among the bodies of the lesbian lovers. So I, it, and a lot of sadomasochism, folks out there. Those of you who love fingers being chopped off, um, this movie is for you. So I, I first saw this movie at the Toronto Film Festival a few months ago, and I saw it pretty late at night. It was like 10 o'clock, and it's a long movie, so it didn't finish till late. But I was, I was riveted the entire time. I, I, st- I was intrigued by every plot twist. I loved the characters, loved the acting, the, the, um, the cinematography. And I wondered how it would stand up to a second viewing, because now I knew where the plot was going. Would I be as surprised and, and delighted with it? And let me tell you, it, it, at least for me, it... Uh, it played even better the second time around than the first time. And I think partly it's because of what makes for such a great kind of confidence game movie is that it's not necessarily the twists that keep you engaged. It's the way that when you revisit the movie, it's not dull, but rather you pick on you pick up on the accumulation of details that point towards the the twists that kind of give you these subliminal hints when you watch it for the first time, but that you can really delight in and really uh you know, reflect on how this is a masterful, not just filmmaker, but storyteller, the way that we, and for, for a director as a storyteller, that means that, you know, he uses his actors as much as props and scenes to tell the story. And so some of the details that I just loved the, the second time around, every time we heard this, uh, this, this laugh, this kind of crazed laugh of the Korean handmaiden. At first, it comes off as very nervous when she reads the letter, kind of the letter that supposedly is a recommendation of her, you know, saying this is a great maid who is going to serve you well. And we get this very nervous laugh because, in fact, she's illiterate. We hear that laugh a number of times, and sometimes it's, she's nervous, but also we hear it when she's in the insane asylum at the end. And that laugh means something completely different when we know that who is in control has completely flipped. That laugh is no longer one of someone kind of going out of their mind or worried about getting caught. It's it's someone who is kind of very kind of concretely grabbing hold of her fate and kind of relishing the way that she has manipulated someone who thought that, you know, was manipulating her. Uh, we also have the kind of vial of opium, these little these metal balls that twinkle at well, the well, end that well, give a kind of playful sound, but in fact, they start out as a means of punishment and then their pleasure and then their uh, hint for the history of this girl. Well, there's a real unusual aesthetic here. There's a, there's, there is a love of like, uh, I, I, I mean, that's the, the aspect of it that I, 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 I really, in, I think I enjoyed. I, I mean, I learned a lot about stuff uh, uh, going on between the Japanese and the Koreans in terms of, um, I think I learned a lot. I was immersed in a but whole... But it's, I mean, it's Venus and Fur told in fairy tale. I mean, this is, it has that same obsession with, say, I mean, Lucy, I think that's what you responded to, partly the kind of extreme kind of sadism and masochism of it, except flipped entirely in which the the women are in control, but also it has that, that lightness of spirit of a grim fairy tale. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I also loved it for for the just the reason that it, aesthetically it's a really pleasing film. This is a beautifully, beautifully done piece. 
It's really hard to, you know, I was sitting out in the uh, office here, we're here at the, at the, uh, the, the broadcast booth outside, there's a paper cutter and uh, Norma from Lavoe's was cutting some paper going whack, whack, whack. And she was, she was, you know, doing some stuff and it, it put me because I was thinking about this movie uh, in the, into the third section of the film because, because the movie essentially is divided, um, into uh, the handmaidens story uh, for starters, then the then the um, the, the heiress, the, the, heiress the target of the scam for the second part, and the third part uh, we we get the scammer, the male scammer. I forget his name in, in Korean, but he gets his fingers chopped off like little cocktail sausages, and you see it in this film. And you know, I mean, uh, maybe, maybe this is a you know, I I mean, you know, sadomasochism and uh, is in the eye of the beholder, I guess. But I found that impossible to to look at, and it's so funny because I'm in the midst of reading a Korean novel. Uh, a well, I forget the uh, her name is Khan, a, a young woman who's all the rage in Korea, and it's about. Um, uh, I, I'm in the middle of a scene in which he paints women's bodies with colors, and it, it's both about it's it's held in mind of the narrator. It's both about the lush aesthetic pleasures of uh, flowers painted on a body, but it's also about sex and it's weird. It's just, for me, there's a, there's a weird aesthetic going on here. And, and, um, uh, you know, we should let our viewers know that this is not for everybody. This is, this is a very demanding film and with a lot of, um, um, uh, you know, challenges to different kinds of viewers in terms of, you know, how much, uh, uh, ugliness you want to watch, I mm. think, as as well as um, um, there are a lot of there are a lot of uh, uh, tips about lesbian lovemaking. I mean, you know, I learned a lot about that, you know, which I'm go... grateful for that. But this is not fairy tale stuff. But we, you know, I I think I appreciate that. Yes, if you are uncomfortable with nudity and graphic depictions of sex and violence, this movie may not be for you. But especially American audiences, we go to the movies for sex and violence. Like, this is this is what we demand. And I think what makes this such a, a master film is that we don't see the chopping off of fingers for just some uh, kind of vicarious thrill and horror at seeing violence on screen. And yes, it's uh, pretty well, what obvious. Do it, what well, do we see it for yes, if it's, not if It's not an not obvious bit of, like, emasculation, but it's also, ju- it's also counterposed so beautifully with the violence, the very subtle kind of verbal violence being inflicted by this woman by this uh, uncle figure uh, earlier on in the movie when he is kind of forcing his his soon-to-be bride but also niece to read these intensely pornographic uh, books for the benefit of these kind of upper, you know, high society philanderers mm-hmm. who, who actually just want, who go there for the sexual titillation well, of it. But that, I think that, you know, the not-so-recognizable violence in that is brought to bear in that final scene where, yeah, this is, what he's really doing is he's chopping off the fingers of of the women each time that... Uh, he makes them read a story. That well, that violence is well, part of the right. entire. Well, I read that this director, who's who's also a film critic and a lover of Quentin Tarantino, which is a whole other story, because there are Quentin Tarantino aspects of this film. But he is uh, his reputation a bit is 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 that he's got a a, a particular taste for vengeance, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of there's. But I keep on thinking every time I say a word like vengeance, I think this is the porn of vengeance because there's a kind of real sinking into all these moments that, to me, uh, crosses over into self-indulgence. Lucy, I'm talking too much. Oh, 
uh, no. I, I mean, I, I just think one thing that we're not mentioning here is that there is a real Edo period sensibility to the film. And the Edo period is something that's very, it's known and respected and kind of, that's what you learn in your Art History 101 or Intro to Asian Art. And that's early 17th century to late 19th century Japanese printmaking that is very, very well respected. And so I, I just think it's worth bringing that in that um, there's sort of this uncle and then these young women who, um, because of the uncle's obsession with this uh, kind of textual period in uh, Japanese literature and then uh, shunga, which is pornographic literature that was that was a big part of printmaking culture in Japan. Um, I, I, I just feel that that's absolutely worth when mentioning because you see those those tropes kind of those visual tropes, especially if you think about like the cherry tree that you see over and over again. And when are you seeing a noose or a body hanging from this tree? And I think that, you know, listeners who may not be familiar with that Japanese artistic tradition, who may be more familiar with European uh, art traditions will recognize the kind of landscape painting or the kind of portraits of female nudes from early 18th century European art in the depictions of these women uh, as much as anything else. And I think that what this director is doing is saying that this uh, this kind of traditional and much celebrated representation of female beauty and kind of domestic placidity, uh, it is always underscored by an incredible violence. And one way to tackle that violence is through the Tarantino approach of the fun revenge thriller, which is what makes Inglorious Bastards so much more than just kind of an enjoyable jaunt. I mean, this is pe- people, uh, it's one rooted in, in film history and all the different genres right. that Tarantino is referencing, but it also, you know, it's that counterfactual. We are kind of overturning the uh, the system that, of course, wound up being as um, aggressively violent as possible towards people. Uh, they're kind of overturning it with the the tactics of of that very system of oppression. I see that here too, in that yes. We are given pornography through pictures of naked women, but the naked women are not the you know the objects of this gaze. They're very much the subject. No, he work, No, he works through the pornography and uh, and um, um, but the, the thing that uh, I mean, it's you can't I guess fault uh, a filmmaker for making the movie that you did not want the, uh, uh, for making a, the, the movie he made as opposed to the movie you wanted him to make because what 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 I was uh, w- would really um, made me sink into this movie and try to really enjoy it was the first big plot turn where, um, because there is there, and it reminded me of an absolutely wonderful movie. And I love movies about confidence men. Uh, and one of the great, I don't know if it's fully appreciated, uh, kind of scam movies is dirty, rotten scoundrels with Steve Martin. And there is no greater scam that when this, uh, that when you scam the scammer, and this is what's really wonderful about this The problem with this film is that, is that that's the superstructure that it's hung on, but you, he's more interested in all these other issues than in that, those narrative turns as it was, was, was my feeling. Lucy, I know that you, I, I lost you love this movie probably more than I, I liked it a lot. Alan, maybe not so much, but I want to give you the last 15 seconds. Uh, make your pitch for this. Why, why'd you love it? So? Yeah. Um, so the director takes an uncle's obsession to render a uh, sort of fantasy world rooted in Japanese printmaking culture that is two dimensional to render that three dimensional. The director takes it, turns it on its head. And the last word I have to say about this movie is it is not pornographic, but it is a movie that you should go watch. Thanks, Tom. Alan, Lucy, thanks so much.